go to verse 17, chapter 1. Uh, kind of where we're at is we're flat on our face is where we're at. And if you'll remember with me where we left off um, last week. Last week was kind of snow week, so I did a little bit of reiteration. But what's happening is John, John is on the island of Patmos, right? He's a, he's a prisoner, and he's, he's imprisoned because of the Word of God, right? So um, theory has it that we're, we're in the period of Domitian's reign, that um, many of the, the Christians at that point in time uh, said we're, we are not going to bow down to an emperor. Um, you know, prior to the Flavian emperors in Rome, uh, emperors did, did not demand worship, right? But as you get into the, the Flavian emperors, um, it's almost like this switch goes off and you have one after the next after the next. They're crazy. And um, they, they call themselves gods and they demand worship. You'll bow down before me. Well, the, the Christians had to decide how are we going to respond to that. Um, and, and so you have, you have kind of two sides of that coin, right? Um, and you'll see this repeat itself over and over and over again in history. Hitler comes and says, you cannot, you churches cannot speak against my policies. And so you have these conversations in the church and, and a lot of the people say, well, you know, let's, if we speak against his policies, they're going to shut us down and we'll be good at no one. So let's agree to do that, and, uh, and yet privately and individually, we can, we can still go on and we can, you know, we'll have nice, happy services, but individually we can carry on the torch of Christianity. And then you get people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that during that period that said, no, absolutely not. We will not bow down to evil. We will continue to profess our faith boldly from the pulpit and speak against policies that are, are meant to bring harm to the people of God. And so he ends up in prison, right? And um, so the same thing is true in, in Rome. Uh, as the Flavian emperors come, Christians have to make this decision. Am I going to just sit back and say to myself, well, play it safe because if I don't, I'll be in prison. I'll be no good to anyone. Uh, or worse yet, I'll be killed. Um, or do I just, or do we stand up boldly? Well, you know, you have a John who is in, in Ephesus, he's an apostle, he's not about to bow down. He's not about to say, I won't speak boldly this word of God. So he ends up being imprisoned on Patmos. Patmos is kind of that um, uh, island from which there is no escape, right? The Alcatraz of the day. And the reason that they've imprisoned him there is, is because they, they, they learned a long time ago, you can't, you can't kill someone like John. I mean, they wanted to, but if you kill someone like John, you're going to end up with the same problem you have with Jesus. You kill Jesus, and what happens? He keeps popping up everywhere, right? <laughs> Don't kill John. Just let him die. So stick him on the island, let him die. So he's, he, he describes himself as being in worship on the day of the Lord when he hears the, the trumpet voice go off, and he, he turns, and he, he begins to see this incredible... Jesus who's standing before him and where he ends up then is falling flat down on his face as though he were dead. And we understand that. We recognize that, you know, to look at, to look at God, to look at a Jesus and his holiness and who he is, you don't stand up before him and say, hey, you're lucky to be with me. You know, you look at him and you find yourself just realizing 
that all the stuff that you can hide from each other, and we do, can't be hidden from him. He sees me. I fall down. And the grace of God is what you see when, when Jesus puts his right hand upon John, and the first words out of his mouth are, fear not. Don't, don't be afraid. I'm not here, John, to crush you. Remember who I am, the one whose sacrifice covers you. And he names himself as the first and the last, the living one uh, who died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Um, and I love these, these last words at the end of verse number 18. He tells him, I am the one, John, who holds the keys to death and to Hades. It's kind of an interesting way to say it, right? As he's, as he's getting John to, to stand back up, he's wanting to say to him, I, I am the one who has authority over everything that's going to happen until the very end of time. And remember, uh, what Jesus tells us is that at the very end of, of this age that we're in today, our greatest enemies, right, will be put to rest forever. Who are our greatest enemies? Death is one of your greatest enemies. You cannot overcome it. 100% of us in this room will die. Physical death, right? What Jesus says is, I, I'm the one who actually brought death into this world at the time Adam and Eve broke my covenant with them. And so that will remain in place until the new age. And in the new age, there will be no more death. I will take it and I will end it. And I will make death literally the footstool to my lounge chair, right? So what is he saying? He says, I have authority over it. I, I, will, I will come to that place, John, where I put that to an end. What else do I have authority over? Well, the word in Greek is a do, and it's translated in our English Bibles typically Hades. Who else, who else gets put to rest? Satan. Okay. Um, who, who is an enemy that you and I, in our own selves and strength, cannot overcome? Satan. Okay. And one of the great questions that uh, the world likes to ask us as Christians is, well, why would why would God, this God that you follow, why would he even allow Satan to do what he does? I mean, he does a lot of damage. Uh, why, would, why would you allow an, an angel who, who is one of the most significant creations uh, of your hand, who falls, who does battle with you, why would you put him on earth along with other fallen angels? Because the reality is that, that you and I are involved in a battle against uh, spiritual forces. We can't win. They'll destroy us. Guarantee you. Um, they're working on us all the time. Why would you do that? Why not? Okay, you had this great war that takes place in heaven, right? You, you overcome Satan and the angels who come against you. Why not just put them in hell and leave them there? And they're done. Why would you allow them free reign on earth? Well, the point of it is, God would say, I don't allow them free reign. They are under my authority. Okay. But under my authority, I do allow them to do what? To test, to tempt, to possess, to oppress. And they do all of that. All right. And uh, why would God do that? Well, again, 
people in the world would not understand my answer at all. But I, I always say, why would God do that? Because he loves us. And he cares about us. And he wants relationship with us. Nothing will drive you to dependence upon Jesus Christ more than a spiritual battle. Where you find yourself in a place where you finally say, I can't do this. I can't win this war. All right. Uh, Pastor Carl this morning in his message, it's a great message, you know, talks about his dad and uh, an addiction. And in most addicts' lives, uh, you pray for that day when that addict says to themselves, I, I've tried, I've told myself I can overcome this. I can't. It's got me. It's, it's beating me. And when you get to that place, you realize it's not just... Listen, this addiction is not just uh, alcohol or, 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 or pornography or uh, gain. It's not that. There's a spiritual thing going on inside of you. You're using those things to do what? To try to fill up the emptiness in your life. So you're broken. And uh, until you get to that place of saying, not only can I, can I not overcome this addiction, but this is about a spiritual battle. Now, now God steps into our lives in a much more significant way. So why does God allow that free reign? Why does he give authority to, to Satan and fallen angels, demons, uh, in our lives? Because he loves you. He wants relationship with you. And I, I get it that most people in our world would look at me today and they'd say, well, that's, that's crazy. That doesn't sound like love. I'd say, absolutely it is. Because he, know, he made you. He knows you. He knows how doggone stubborn you are and how you're going to hold on to the idea that you can overcome this. He knows that. And he, desire, he actually desires to break you, right? And so when he's saying this to John, what he's saying is, John, uh, don't be afraid. Stand up and stand in my grace. Understand who I am. I'm the one who will finally take Satan and these fallen angels and when this age that we're in ends, they will, they will be locked in prison forever. You, you will not, uh, on new earth, you will not have Satan and fallen demons any longer. All right? So that, that's what he's trying to say is, um, and this is very consistent throughout Revelation as he's talking about this time frame that we're in now. And he says, as long as we're in it now, just understand this. I have authority over, over our enemies. I will put them to rest but, but for this period of time, there's going to be death and there, there's going to be satanic battle, all right? Um, next thing he says to John is really, is really good. It's important. Go to verse 19. He says, John, I want you to write down, uh, therefore, the things that you have seen, all right? Um, it's kind of interesting because we, we read Revelation as, as, a, as a letter, right? And, and what's happened is, is John has, goes through this entire vision, right? Don't know how long it takes. Was it an hour? Was it 15 minutes? I don't know. But, but what Jesus tells him is in the midst of that, he says, I want you to write down the things that you have seen, the things that I'm going to show you. This is significant. Notice what it says. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. Here's why that's important to me. Most people, when you, when you buy a book about Revelation or you read a novel about Revelation or you see a movie, most, most people talk about Revelation as though all of it is, is describing something that's 
going to take place sometime in the future. Most folks are eschatologists who, who will say to you, all of this stuff's going to take place uh, after the rapture. Then the tribulation will begin. That's not, not what Jesus is telling John. Notice this. He says, write down the things that you see, the things that are right now happening. Okay? So the time frame for, for the book of Revelation is important. It's, it's happening now. When somebody asks you, do you think we're in the last times? Here, here's the best answer. Um, it doesn't matter what I think. In fact, it really doesn't matter what you think. The only thing that matters is what Jesus has already said. Would you be interested in looking at that with me? Because when you look at it, it's, it's not debatable. Jesus says, these are the things that are, and, and, and they're going to take place, and, and when will they end? When death ends, <laughs> and, and when Hades ends, when I put it to an end. So all of this will occur during that time frame that began, really, with his first coming into the world, and then concludes uh, at the second coming of his um, um, coming into this world. Now, remember that when John's looking at Jesus, one of the things he sees is he sees Jesus holding in his hands um, seven Lucniuses and seven Astriuses. Okay? I always love these words. So seven, he sees Jesus holding these seven stars. So, you know, in Greek, the astronomy comes from, uh, from this word Astrius, stars. And so you see Jesus with these seven stars in his hands, right? And, and when John first sees it, he's not, not different than any one of us in this room. He, he probably looks at Jesus and goes, huh? What's the, whoa, what are you, whoa, what are seven stars? Okay. And, then, and then Jesus is walking amongst seven Lucniuses. And I, I, I kind of like that word because it has my name in it. <laughs> so Lucnius, okay? Luke's a Greek word. I mean, it's a Greek name. So it's, it's uh, literally translated the one who bears light. And uh, so Lucnius is a lampstand, all right? And so John looks at this stuff, and, and trust me, all throughout this vision that he's, he's going through, everything he sees, he doesn't go, oh, I get it. He's like us. He's like, um, what's that, right? So usually it's an angel that will translate for him. In, in this particular case, it's actually Jesus who just flat out tells him. He says, as for the mystery of those seven stars and the seven lampstands, let me just go ahead and tell you what they are. And so he says, he says the seven Lucniuses, the seven lampstands, are the seven ecclesion, seven churches. Remember, Revelation is written to churches, right? And we're going to get seven of them named. Those seven are representative of the many churches that made up the world and that particular region, right? Um, to me, significant is just the word itself, ecclesion, right? Because normally in Western America, we think of a church immediately, what do we think about? A steeple, here's the people, right? A place, whereas ecclesion has two words in it, ek, ek, out of, klesios, called out of. And so the church are, is the, all those people who are called out of this world to serve him, right? So I want you to write down what you 
see what is happening, what is going to happen. And by the way, those seven Lucneuses, lampstands that you saw, what are they there? The church. There are all those people out here who have been called to follow me. That's who the letter of Revelation is for. Revelation is not, does not make sense at all to someone outside of faith. It's just goobly, garbly language that people look at and go, that's crazy language. Okay? Um, it's meant to be for the church. It's meant for us. All right? And then he says, it's for the seven asterisks, the seven stars that you saw, those are seven angeloi, angels. Seven angels. Now, this becomes significant as we open up each one of the seven letters because the letters are directed to the angel. So what does, that, what does that look like? What does that mean? How many of you, when you talked with each other, said, I think somewhere along the line in my life, I think I may have seen an angel? How many of you said something like that? Okay. I like the way the Bible says it, in your unawares, right? When I was a kid, I used to read that in Hebrews. I'd say, you know, some of you will entertain angels in your underwears. And I'm like, <laughs> I'd say to my, my mom, why do you have to wear your underwear to see an angel, you know? Said, no, no, son, no, son. Um, the word angel is, is of course, the, the, the primary meaning of it is a, a created spiritual being whose function is to serve God. It's part of the part of the Sabbath army, right? Um, what drives me nuts is in our Western culture, we've created all kinds of literature and movies and songs about angels, and most of it is just ridiculous, right? Uh, I always tell people if you if you really want to seriously study what I would call angelology, talk to a rabbi, read Jewish literature, because the Jews much more than the the Christian community in the West really take angels more seriously. And uh, under the hierarchy of Judaism, uh, the, the Jews actually name seven archangels, all right, and, uh, and try to align them with the, the Jewish church, right, the body here on earth. Um, the Bible itself does not name seven archangels, right, but the, the Jews extrapolate on what the teachings of, of rabbis have been for centuries and say, well, we recognize that God uses angels to watch over and serve his people, including the church, right? So would it have been strange for these early Christians to hear that word, the seven angels of the seven churches, would it be odd for them to think, okay, so what's happening is Jesus is saying, write these things and now send them to the seven angels, the angels that serve to watch over my church. Would that have been odd to them? Probably not. They would probably see themselves as, okay, we can't fight the spiritual battle in our flesh. And so what does God do? He commands, he commands an army of angels who battle for us, right? There's a secondary meaning of the word, though. All right, so I actually started you off this morning with a trick question. And based upon the number of hands that just went up a few minutes ago, most of you got it wrong. <laughs> I asked you if you think you've ever seen an angel. 
And if you, if, you, if you didn't put your hand in the air, here's the problem with that, is you're sitting next to one. Just look at your wife and say, yes, dear, yes, dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, why would I say that? Well, <laughs> see, because the word angel, literally, what does it mean? A messenger, someone who speaks the word of God, right? You ever spoken the word of God to one another? You're an angel. When you're bringing the word of God to another person, you're a messenger of God. You bring his message to another person. All right. Now, in the church, the way that you would have looked at this as you're moving into the earliest centuries of Christianity is that the angels would actually be the pastors of the church. Regional, I call them bishops, people who are overseeing a region, and all of those individuals who are what? Leading house churches. Okay. And, uh, and so they're not, it's not some weird weird word for the early church it's very commonly used and so I, I i think when john hears this from jesus write this and let's send this these letters to the angels of the seven churches what he understands almost immediately is this, this letter is going to go out and it's going to go out to those who are who are giving leadership regionally and who are giving leadership within the house church itself that's, that's, who the, that's who this letter will go to. And uh, I think last week we talked about this. How, do the, how does that scroll get off of the island? Well, again, John is not in chains on the island. He's free to move about, and he's also free to, to write and to correspond with people back uh, uh, on the, the, the mainland. And so he would have written this scroll, and it would have been delivered out. And then from church to church to church to church to church to church. Uh, taken and putting, putting it into the hand of the one who is giving leadership. Okay, so what happens next? Uh, John's, John's gotten up. He says, okay, I get the picture. You're going to give me some words to bring to the church. And uh, what's that going to look like? Beginning with chapter 2, here, here's what's going to happen is we're going to get these seven letters to these churches in Ephesus and Theatra and Smyrna and Pergamon, right? And um, what I want you to notice as we go through these seven different letters is a, a couple of things. First thing I want you to notice is there's a pattern to them, okay? And it's a real simple pattern, but it's important because I think it's a, it's a pattern that applies to uh, the church and even our own lives today, okay? Here's the pattern. It'll always start with a word of encouragement, okay? Um, you know, we, we've learned this in teaching. If you're a teacher, you know this, right? What, what does more good for you in your classroom? Pointing out something that a student is doing wrong or pointing out something that a student is doing right? Which do we tend to do first? Wrong. It's the same thing in our homes with our kids. We just almost automatically don't do that. You know what? It's not, it's not helpful. Start, always start off. Always lead with grace. Always lead with grace. Well, how, how can I encourage you? How can I say this to you that you belong to Jesus Christ, that look at, look at how God has worked, how, how I see God in you. Always encourage me. And so that's how the letters will start off. In, in all seven of them, you're going to hear a word where Jesus is saying to the body, I want to encourage you. You know what? This, th th what you're doing right now, it's exactly what I've called you to do. Okay? I, I think about it 
at a, at a, a level up here, I think, okay, so if Jesus were to come here to this church, okay, and were to walk in the front doors, um, for us to see him, it's not different than John, is to know this is one who sees us, all of our faults and warts and ugliness, and we fall down at his feet. We have failed you. We have failed you, God. It's also to receive that hand of grace, be raised up under my grace. But now Jesus, if he were to speak to our body, what would he say? What would his words of encouragement be? He would say, of this body, here are things that I want to encourage you. You're doing these things. You're doing them well. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you as we go through all seven of these letters to listen carefully to the things that Jesus commends because they teach you something about what the church should be, right? And in many cases, what happens when you read Revelation is you'll hear these commendations. Here's Jesus saying, this is great that you're doing this. This is great that you're doing this. And you'll find yourself going, oh, oh, oh my gosh. How did we get away from that? All right? There are other times you'll read those words and you'll say, you know what? I'm encouraged by that. That's something that, that, that by the grace of God is happening through this body. Second uh, movement in all these letters is a, a word of rebuke, okay? So you'll, you'll hear this word in every single one of these letters. It's the word, but. But this I have against you. Rebuke, okay? Again, we live in the Western world that tells us rebuke is a bad thing. You, you shouldn't really say something to a person that's going to make them feel bad, right? And, and we think of rebuke negatively. It's not negative. When Paul talks about how the word of God is given to us to serve the church, he says it's given by, by inspiration, right? And it's useful for what? For, for teaching and correcting, for rebuking. The, the objective of rebuke is never to crush. It's always to do what? To, to call back, to come back to me. And so uh, part of what Jesus would say to the church or to e each one of us as individuals is, imagine standing before Jesus right now and him, he's speaking to you and saying, Luke, I really want to encourage you. This, this, this is really, you know, in my kingdom work, this is really good. And this, but Luke, this I have against you. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus. Oh my goodness. Significant? I, I cannot imagine how any individual or any ecclesia, body of gathered up people, can hear these words and not have them strike to our heart and core. If, if, that's, if that's going on, something is desperately wrong. Because the, the intention of these words is for me individually and us as a body to hear them and to say, oh my goodness gracious, guess what? This is, this is serious stuff. It's about souls. And Jesus is, is engaging his body in a battle for souls. So I want you to listen carefully as we go through all seven of these letters to his words of rebuke. Because they're not meant to crush, but they absolutely are meant to say, come back to, come back to this. Okay. And then the last uh, word that we'll hear is this, this word, repent. I want you to repent. Okay. Again, negative connotation in our Western culture. It's one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Right? Um, 
if you're if you were at uh, the earlier service, I took this word apart a little bit. The word in Greek is is two words: meta and noia. Anoia is your your noose, your mind, right? And so meta, you hear that word, a metamorphosis is what? A change. And so when you put them together, metanoia is a change of mind. Here's the reality is, God's constantly calling us to repent and change our mind. Come back to him. Be of one mind with him. The problem is, we can't do it. And, And most of Christianity kind of slides itself into a form of legalism when it stands before its people and says, come on, you know, we're, we're people of God. We're going to be obedient. We're going we're gonna, to, we're gonna, you know, agree with God. The thing you got to love about Luther, warts and all, is the guy got, got this right. He's the one voice in the entire Reformation era who stood up before the world and says, we're not pious. We're not that. The honest truth is, we stand before God and we say to him, I don't want to change. I like the way I am. Are you holding a grudge against someone? Yes, and I like it. You know? <laughs> um, and, and Luther would just say that. He just said, don't, don't be pretending with God. Just tell him, I don't like me, but I can't change me. You'll have to change me. God, would you meta, noia, give me a new mind. Give me a new heart. Right? And so that's the intention of Jesus' words is, I'm calling you to, to come back to me and allow me to, to take you and just turn you back and give you a new mind and a new spirit. And that's the pattern then you're going to find in all seven of these letters that are written. And again, I encourage you with, with each one of them, don't just read it like it's some Bible study. And you go, oh, yeah, that's good. No, think about personally. How is Jesus speaking to you if you look through those eyes that are on fire and they look right into you and you don't have to pretend anymore. Just be who you really are. And it's okay to be able to say, God, I'm a mess because he says, do not fear. I'm for you. And I'm the one who wants to change you. And he needed to do some changing in his church at that time. First letter is written to whom? Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. Okay? Always the prologue of these letters will just come back to that original picture that John sees. This is who I am. I'm Jesus. Don't get this wrong, angel, pastor. This is Jesus speaking to you, not John. Right? Now, here's what he says. By the way, I'm reading out of the NEV, the uh, New English Version. A lot of you have New International Version, right? So there may be a little variation in it. And, and to be honest with you, I actually just have right up in front of me, my preference is just to read it in the Greek because I think um, a lot of times our translations miss an element of the word. And that's true in this case. Here's what he says. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Okay, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now, this is the commendation. This is the encouragement. Three words that he's giving, giving us here. If Jesus is looking at my life, Luke's life, here's three things that he's looking at. If he's looking at this body, here are three things that he's looking at. He says, I'm looking at your erga, your works, 
Here's where the translations don't quite capture it. Your coupon. Literal translation, your fruits. Remember this? Ye shall know them by their what? Fruits. That's there. That's there. Okay. And then the last word is your hypomone. And I love this Greek word because it kind of sounds like what it is. Hypo means underneath. Right? So a, a submarine goes hypo underneath the water. You're underneath Monet. It kind of sounds like a big, loud moan, like, oh, Monet, right? You're under moaning. And what it literally translates into is you're, you're under what? You're under suffering. And you, you, you capture the essence of the word then, your endurance. And so he's, he's actually speaking to these, these three things. And he's saying, I'm, what, I'm watching you. I'm watching your works. I'm watching your fruit. And I'm watching how do you endure. All right. Now, are those significant to us? Absolutely. Why? Because they are, they are what Jesus pays attention to in our life. Starting off with this one right here. I'm watching your works. Okay. This is not good for us as Lutherans because we are a uh, Christocentric, grace-oriented church body that learns formulaically to say things like this. Well, it's not by work we're saved, but by what? By grace. We're a very grace-oriented, Christ-focused body of believers. And you know what? That's good. I, I, I commend that too. That's a wonderful thing. Do you know that Jesus is watching your works? I'll show you a scary passage. Go to the book of James. Let's go to chapter 2. And I want you to look at the four, four, 14th verse with me. And actually, we'll probably start off a little bit, little bit differently. Just go ahead and turn to James. Okay. So beginning with verse 14, here's what James is, is saying to the church of his time. Uh, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? Ooh, that's a, that's a pretty significant question, right? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You know, I always think about how we as Christians sometimes almost abuse that phrase, I'll pray for you, right? I'll walk right by you. But I'll pray for you. And he says, what good is that? Verse 17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone says, someone, someone of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. <laughs> Satan can do that. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Go down to verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. Okay, Go to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Kind of scary language. Here's why. We, we want to live under grace, and we need to live under grace. Okay. But I, I know when Jesus looks at me, one of the things his burning eyes see to, see towards, is this thing called works. Okay. 
to the degree that when when Paul talks about the the inspired scripture, he says the the scripture, these words of God are given to you that you might what carry out the works that God prepared for you. It gets down to that level. That that before creation took place, God saw a Luke. That he says, I'm going to bring Luke into this world at this time and in this place. I'm going to, to gift Luke in this particular way for the purpose of bringing other people to me. Remember this, all of our works in the end have one goal or aim, and that is to bring people to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Whether that gift is the gift of hospitality, right? Some of you have that gift. It's not just hospitality because you're good at throwing a party. It's hospitality to serve what end? The end of bringing someone to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Okay. So, so here's a God who, before he even spoke the first words, let there be, says there's going to be Luke at this time and this place, and I'm going to gift him in this way to serve my kingdom and bring other people to know me. Whoa. Seriously? Seriously. Okay. So what is he looking at when he looks at my life? How are you doing? I called you. I gifted you. I placed you. What's happening with you? Part of me says, whoa, 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 whoa. Seriously, you're going to look at my works? Yes. James just puts it flat out on the table. He says, apart, apart from works, what you have isn't really faith. Now, let's go to the other side of the coin. Am I judged according to my works? Am I judged according to my works? Well, fortunately for us, this is the grace side of it. Um, I will always fail God in what he purposed me to do. I will always fail him. Okay. So in the end, how am I judged? I'm judged according to what? The works of Jesus Christ, which cover me. So it's right for us to say, by grace we're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not of your own doing, right? That's right to say. But what, what, what James is trying to help us understand is we can say all day long, oh, I believe, I, I, I follow Jesus. But remember there will come a day, please listen to me, there will come a day, we call it judgment day, when Jesus literally says, I will hear many of you cry out to me, Lord, Lord, Lord. And I will say unto you, I do not know you. Why? Dead faith. What tells me faith is alive? That thing right there works. How are you carrying out the plan that God has for your life? Let me say one more thing about this, and I'll move on to the second word before we wrap up. This is really important to me. Um, we got a lot of young people in this congregation. I praise God for it. I mean, I see babies and kids that are coming up, and you know, uh, we we we're we're a place that says we really need to bring ministry to those folks. Uh, you know, we've got a preschool that we're trying to serve families with. We're, we've got school. We've got a youth program. We've got a lot of stuff. Why? Because our kids live in the world. And what is the world constantly trying to tell our kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do with your life? Um, wh where do you want to live? What kind of house do you want to have? I, I mean, couples, when they're coming to get married, and I stop and I say to them, hey, what are your, what are your hopes for your, your life? 
what do they say to me? Things like, well, we're hoping that we're going to have we're going to have a job. We're going to have these kids, and but first we, we don't have the we don't have the kids yet because we've got to get enough money to to buy the house and 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 the dog before the kids. And and and, they, and I and I'm like, what is this language? That is like foreign language to me. None of it makes sense. Think about this. Here's what we should be saying and walking with our kids on. Not what do you want to be when you grow up, but what's the question? What did God make you for? Okay. Here's the reality is, you know why so many people are miserable in their work? It's not what God made them for. And they're trying to go about doing stuff and they're miserable. And God goes, no, I made you and put you here for a kingdom purpose. And so I think one of the questions we ask over and over and over with our, our kids is, so what did he make you for? And, and where, what passions is he pulling you towards? How are you designed to serve his kingdom? That's the question we ask, right? And, and when we have youth groups, and the, it's not just a let's have a fun time. It's, it's guess what? There's a battle going on, and you're part of it. You're part of the army. How has God equipped you? Because it's what he looks at. And he's saying to this body of people, I've, I've watched your works. And I'm going to commend you for them. You're doing what I called you to do. Now, one last, last note on that. Isn't it significant that God not only places people where he wants us in a particular time and place, but also churches? And one of the questions that I ask churches over and over and over again is, are you, this body, doing what God has called and purposed you to do? Too often churches live and operate in an imitative way. They look at what other churches are doing and they say to themselves, we need to do that. <clears throat> Wrong. Not how God wired his body up. It's this one here, 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 this one here. Every single one of the churches who we're looking at, including Ephesus, they have a different role to play. And the, the objective of being a church together is to seek out how does God uniquely call this body to play its role in the battle going on for souls. Okay, So that, that's all tied up in this word right here. I'm watching your works. Okay, I'm watching your fruit. What do we measure? I mean, most of you work for companies. They, they have some kind of measurement standard that they use. You know... Um, Right? Did you make X number of widgets this month? How many cartons of beer did you sell? You know, I mean, all of that stuff. In a church, what do we measure typically? Numbers. I call it this: butts and seats and bucks and plates, <laughs> butts and bucks. Right? Does, is that what Jesus is looking for here? Is that fruit? Not at all. What's the only thing he's looking for? What's the only thing he's looking for? Souls, right? Are you bringing people to know me as their Savior? Okay. This is something that I want us to think hard about together. All right? And, and I'm going to close. I'm just going to speak to you real frankly, real honestly. Is I've been doing ministry for a lot of years. I mean, I'm, I'm an old dog. Um, this is what concerns me about the body is our fruit doesn't look good. It's bad. 
um, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time, and we do a lot of things that we call good. And, and I'm not going to debate whether they're good or they're bad. Picnics and, you know, organizations, that kind of thing. But at the end, if we're not bringing people to know Jesus as Savior, why are you even doing it, right? So I think one of the things that we want to we, we look at personally, Luke, Luke how, how, are, how is that happening in your life? And corporately, as a body, how is that happening? If we don't look at that in light of this word right here, encouragement, rebuke, let's, let's, be, encouraged where, let's be encouraged where God is using you and this body to bring people. But please listen to me. Let us not in any way, shape, or form try to soften this. I think God, Jesus Christ, if he walked in the doors of the headquarters of our church body, would say, hey, I've got some things to commend, commend you on, encourage you on. These things are some good things. I have a word of rebuke for you. This I have against you. And I think it would come right to this word right here. Copan. I've been watching your fruit. And it isn't good. So um, let's continue to read Revelation in that way. We'll pick up with Ephesus next week.